Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Andrew Seeley. Andrew Seeley is president of the Migration Policy Institute. He was previously the executive vice president of the Woodrow Wilson Center and the founding director of the Wilson Center's Mexico Institute. He is a regular columnist for the Mexican newspaper El Universal and previously served as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations Task Force on Immigration. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Andrew Seeley. Well, thank you. Thank you, Louis. Uh, thank you to Gregory and Joe and Bianca and everyone at Socolow Public Square. It's great to be here. This is a phenomenal organization and a phenomenal opportunity to be with all of you this evening. Socolow Public Square has done a great job not only connecting people with ideas, but also really cataloging and dissecting and talking about the American experience. And what I want to talk about tonight, though it sounds like it's about the United States and Mexico, and it is about the United States and Mexico, is ultimately about our experience with Mexico. It's ultimately about how Mexico is in our lives as Americans, and why it is much, Mexico as a neighboring country is much more deeply in our lives than most of us realize most of the time. The title of tonight's uh, discussion is intentionally provocative. Are Mexico and the United States becoming one country? Um, I, I think the answer is probably a resounding no from anyone here on either side of the border. Um, but it's intentionally provocative because, in fact, we are much closer than we think. Um, we are much closer than people on either side realize most of the time. And the boundaries that once separated us are beginning to fall apart. And we are far more connected than we've ever been. And let's start with the news of the day. The World Cup 2026 bid. Did anyone follow this? Okay. Good. 2026, who's hosting the World Cup? That's right. Mexico, the United States, and Canada. North America. North America World Cup bid. Um, very exciting, actually. That's something would have been hard to imagine 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Mexicans would have been reluctant. You could have imagined Canada and the United States, perhaps. But I suspect Mexicans would have been reluctant to do a bid with the United States, seeing us as an overbearing partner. And my sense is we probably didn't have the awareness or the respect to Mexico to do a joint bid 10 or 20 years ago. A lot has changed in a short period of time. Possible we could have done it. But my guess is it would have taken until now for this to happen. Now, it may seem odd. We're at a time where if you listen to the political rhetoric, things are pretty tense between Mexico and the United States. If we believe the tweets that we see coming across, if we believe political discourse, we're actually drawing further apart from Mexico. But I'm going to argue to you tonight that 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 we should believe more in the World Cup bid than what we see in politics. That what we see happening in the World Cup bid, we're, we're actually coming together around North America and in a relation, different kind of relation with Mexico, is more where we're headed in the future than what we see coming out in political discourse. And it's not because political discourse doesn't matter. It's not because decisions made in politics don't matter. We'll come back to that because it does matter. And it can shape what happens in the future in important ways. But I suspect that the more powerful things happening are happening outside of government, or they're happening below the political level in government. And in the book, Vanishing Frontiers, I tried to tell the story of Mexico and the United States coming together, and ultimately tell it as a story seen from the US side. You'll see a lot from the Mexican side, but ultimately, it's a story from the American side about how Mexico is becoming part of our lives. And I'm going to tell you four stories, four sets of stories that come out of this book. And they're all different facets of how we're coming together in somewhat surprising ways. And I'll try and weave them together at the end into a, a larger story about our coming together as two countries that were once very distant neighbors, but perhaps today are what I'd like to call intimate strangers, deeply interwoven, deeply intimate in our relations with each other, but sometimes yet without the ability 
the understand how our coming together matters to us. So we're intimate strangers. First of all, let me start where the book starts, which is not at the border. I actually thought of starting the book at the border between the United States and Mexico. But I decided in the end to start it in Hazleton, Pennsylvania. Has anyone been to Hazleton, Pennsylvania? Okay, good, good. There's a number of people who have been there. Have anyone heard of Pen- Hazleton, Pennsylvania? Okay. My, my guess is if you've heard of Hazleton, except for those who have spent time there, who are from Pennsylvania, and were nearby, you've probably heard of it because it was a place where the debate on immigration in the United States reached its boiling point. It was the first city to pass local ordinances that outlawed renting or hiring people who couldn't prove their legal documentation in the United States. That was in 2006, not that long ago, 12 years ago. Um, It became the place that CNN camped out for most of a year, where other networks frequently were throughout the year. There were protests for and against immigrants in Hazleton, Pennsylvania. Hazleton largely was put on the national map thanks to a debate around immigration. And it's a city that had gone through, it's a city, actually, Hazleton is a, is a fascinating town up in the Pocono Mountains. It's a town that I actually feel very fond of and I think is actually going places, going good places in the future. Um, and it's a town that wears immigration on its sleeve, not just the current immigration, but the past immigration. I mean, Hazleton, when you walk down the street, you see churches of almost every denomination, but also of different ethnic origins from the migrations that happened 100 years ago. So there's a Serbian Orthodox Church, and you'll see a Ukrainian Catholic church, and then a Ukrainian Orthodox church, and then a Welsh primitive Methodist church, and there's an Irish, a historically Irish parish, and there's a historically Italian parish. This is a city that was built by immigrants about 100 years ago. It was there before 100 years ago, but, but the real boom of Hazleton happened through an earlier migration of Italians and Irish and Eastern Europeans. But what was happening in the mid-1990s, and then the late 1990s into the early 2000s, is you had a strong migration of first Mexicans and later Dominicans into Hazleton, mostly people who had lived in New York area. And they were moving in because there were jobs in Hazleton for the first time, and they were coming there because rent was cheap also, and because it's a beautiful city. And it gave quality of life, particularly to people who had grown up themselves in small towns and wanted to give that to their children. And it's perhaps not surprising that tensions would erupt in Hazleton over time. It was a very, very rapid shift in demographics in a short period of time. Some of those tensions were over services, over how schools could respond to children who didn't speak English or to parents who didn't speak English, competition over resources and hospitals and other public services. There was also a spike in crime, which is very unusual, by the way. Immigrants, as, as you all know, I believe, uh, immigrants are much less likely to commit crimes than native-born Americans. Um, Hazleton was unusual, though, because you had a lot of teenagers who had grown up in New York City, and so were bringing big town ways to a smaller city. So there was a spike in crime for a period of time, later went down. But Hazleton today is also a city renewed. If you walk around Hazleton, has anyone been to Hazleton recently? If you go to Hazleton any time in the last five years, you'll see it's a town that does not, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was filled with boarded out buildings in the downtown area, in the old commercial area. Today it's thriving. There are small businesses everywhere. Stores, restaurants, even a very classy men's store downtown, actually. Um, Hazleton has become a very vibrant city again. It's become a vibrant city largely because the immigrant families that moved in were incredibly entrepreneurial. And it's not surprising, immigrants are twice as likely as native-born Americans to start a business. And that holds true whether the immigrants are from Latin America, or from Europe, or from Asia, or from anywhere else in the world. 
Um, and we can talk about that more if you want to, but it's something we don't completely understand, but it, but it's very well documented. Immigrants are much more likely to start businesses. And sure enough, in Hazleton, you've seen a turnaround of a city that had been in a long economic decline, and you've seen incomes in, increase in Hazleton as well. Now, not only has Hazleton, has immigration in Hazleton harnessed new energy and done what immigrants did 100 years ago to Hazleton, but immigrants in Hazleton have also done a lot to develop their own communities back home. I don't know if Efrain Jimenez is with us here, who is in this book actually, not from Hazleton, but from, I'll mention Efrain in a minute. But one of the stories actually that I tell in here is, uh, is of immigrants in Hazleton also investing in their hometowns in Mexico. And one of the stories of the past 10 or 20 years in Mexico, Mexico has come a long way in a short period of time, has a long way to go for where m many Mexicans would like their country to be, but it's come a very long way in a short period of time. One big piece of that is, is migrants themselves investing in their hometowns. And this is something you see actually from people who live in Hazleton, and it's something you see here in the Los Angeles area. And there's, there's a piece of another chapter, and I'm not gonna tell you the whole story, you have to read the book to, to get the story, but about the Zacatecans of Southern California and about Efrain Jimenez, who may be here somewhere. The, the, he is here. Okay, I'm standing in the light here, so Efrain, good to see you. Gusto verte. So you have to get Efrain's story there about what the Zacatecans in Southern California and Zacatecans throughout the United States eventually, together with FedSAC, the arm that, that he leads, sort of the development arm of the federations, did to move beyond what migrants have always done, which is investing in schools and clinics, and roads, things that really do do a lot of good for communities, but also realizing that it wasn't enough, that in the end people kept leaving their communities, and that it was important also to invest in businesses, invest in things that create employment. And so read that chapter, I think it's chapter eight. The second things were particularly creative in how they did this, and how they went around, how they went about uh, finding ways of investing in employment, creating businesses throughout Zacatecas. And it's something incredibly visible if you go to Zacatecas. But there's a lot of this in Puebla as well from the people, who, the Mexicans who moved to Hazleton. And that's a story that's incredibly important. The other thing that happens in Hazleton that's fascinating, this is actually what got me to go to Hazleton in the first place, is Hazleton was the epicenter of the American immigration debate. But a few years later, it turns out that there are four factories owned by Mexican companies in and around Hazleton providing employment to American workers. Two of them that are inside Hazleton are by Bimbo. I know, don't smirk, people. Okay, Bimbo is Bambino. It's, it's a, the largest bread company in the world. It's a Mexican company. You know it in the United States as Entenmann's, Sara Lee, Baboli Pizza Crust, if you made a pizza lately, um, Oro Wheat, Stroman's, or Thomas English Muffins. Not as English as they used to be. <laughs> eh? Uh, it turns out that the largest bread company, about a quarter of the baked goods in the United States, come from a Mexican company, hiring American workers to make baked goods in the United States and selling them in the United States. Um, not far down the road, there's also a tortilla company. If you've ever had Mission Tortillas, owned by Gruma in Mexico, there's a tortilla plant in the next town over from Hazleton. Um, and there's also Wise Potato Chips. If anyone's lived on the East Coast and eaten Wise Potato Chips, more of an East, East Coast phenomenon, the official potato chip of the New York Mets and the Boston Red Sox, owned by a Mexican company, Arca Continental. Four factories around, Mex around Hazleton owned by Mexican companies, hiring American workers. And it's an interesting story, not because this is the story of every town in the United States, but it tells us some of the complexities in the relationship between the two countries that we often don't think about. As it moved from a period where there were lots of people flowing across the border, 
a flow that largely ended after 2000, 2007, and you began, began to be a flow of Mexican capital coming across the border. And it's a, it's, it's a story that we know very little about, but it's absolutely fascinating. And it's not just bread, and it's not just tortillas, and it's not just potato chips, but Mexican companies are among the largest in milk and yogurt, Lala and Borden, hot dogs and lunch meats, Bar S, cement, Semex, the second largest cement company in the U.S., nails, ladders, prepaid cell service, that's Carlos Slim, of course, um, and ports, actually. The Port of Los Angeles, uh, largely operated by SSA Marine, which is a joint U.S. and Mexican venture, the commercial part of the ports, um, as well as Seattle and New York and, and a lot of the other commercial ports in the U.S. And that's a joint effort, actually, of U.S. and Mexican investors. So let me tell you a second, and you know, this, this is a story, again, Mexican investment in the U.S. is about $17 billion. It's a lot, but you know, it's, it's still a small piece of, of our overall economy, but it begins to tell you about the complexity of this relationship. And it's something that's happened primarily in small and medium-sized towns like Hazleton and the towns around it. Towns that once had a large inflow of Mexican immigration suddenly have a large inflow of Mexican capital, and it begins to create a different relationship. And one of the places this happened, and this is a second story, is in a place called Poplar Bluff, Missouri, southeast Missouri, near, near the border with Arkansas. There's a nail plant owned by Midcontinent, the largest nail plant in the United States. Now, nails is not an industry that's done particularly well in the United States. In fact, imported nails, mostly from China and from a few other countries, have largely displaced the U.S. nail industry. And nails are important. If it weren't for nails, we'd be having this conversation outside on the lawn. Okay? <laughs> They're incredibly useful, right? They're holding the Sealy up. We hope they're good nails, maybe mid-continent nails. Um, mid-continent was trying to hold itself against the tide. They were eventually, the owner of mid-continent eventually decided to sell the company, and it was bought by their provider of steel, which was a Mexican company named De Acero from northern Mexico. And De Acero, at the, the first encounter, there's the story in the book, actually, the first encounter, the CEO of De Acero, who goes to the mid-continent plant and says, you know, I've come here, and we're going to expand the plant and is met by stone-faced silence by the workers, and for good reason. Because what he doesn't realize is down the street, they've just closed an air conditioning plant and moved it to Mexico. And the workers have every reason to believe that they're next. And we should understand, and I talk about this in the book, this is a complex relationship. I will argue to you in a minute that, that our relationship with Mexico has been critical in creating jobs overall in the United States. There is a net benefit to us economically. And in fact, you can't separate our industrial platform from Mexico's industrial platform today. But that doesn't mean that no jobs have ever moved to Mexico. And on the other side, it doesn't mean that no American companies have ever come in and bankrupted Mexican companies that couldn't compete. They were managed to integrate the steel from the Mexican company in northern Mexico with the nails in the US plant. They were able to stay competitive, to stay ahead of the curve, and to compete with imports and to expand the largest nail plant in the United States and hire more workers. Now, nails is a small niche industry, although very important one. Again, I insist without nails we would not be here. But let's take a larger industry, automobiles, the backbone of our industrial complex. Automobiles, if you remember, those of you old enough to remember the 1980s and the early 1990s, we suspected, we thought, we wrung our hands that the American car industry was about to collapse. Right? We were going to be flooded with imported cars from Japan, from Korea, from Europe. That didn't happen. Now, it didn't happen for a lot of reasons. The US car industry managed to become more efficient. They managed to make better cars, more efficient cars, smaller cars. There are lots of things that happen along the way. But one of the critical things that happened is that the US auto industry integrated with Mexico and Canada. 
Today, the auto industry is completely integrated among the three countries of North America. It's just not, not just the World Cup bid. Okay? Also, in terms of automobiles, we make cars together. It would be almost impossible to get into a vehicle today. I, I'm assuming most of us have gotten into a vehicle, unless you live around here. Most have gotten into a vehicle, especially in Los Angeles, we've gotten into a vehicle somewhere. So it's a, a car, a bus, a train, an airplane, almost certainly was made jointly by workers in the United States and Mexico and Canada because the industries are completely integrated across the borders. And today it doesn't matter whether it's an American-owned company or a Japanese company or a Korean company or a German company. Chances are that vehicle was made in North America and primarily in the United States, but with some component parts coming from Mexico and Canada. Because what ended up happening is even foreign car companies took their production to North America. There still are a few imported cars, but there aren't very many, actually. Most cars that you can get in this country, and trucks and planes and go down the line, are made in North America. Now, a few of them are assembled in Mexico, a handful in Canada. Most are still assembled in the United States, but they have a lot of component parts from all three countries. And that's because the three, by integrating the supply chain among the three countries, automobiles became incredibly competitive globally in North America and largely saved the auto industry in North America. Um, when we talk about trade with Mexico and we talk about NAFTA, and I see Raul Hinojosa here who knows a great deal about this and Carol Wise who knows a great deal about this. When we talk about NAFTA, we talk about it as though it's trade. And it is trade, there's a lot of trade. I actually have an interview with a soybean farmer and we talk about US agricultural goods and Mexican agricultural goods. That's real trade. We do make things and send it to the other country. And Mexico's our, our second mar largest market for our exports and that's very important. But much of what we do with Mexico and Canada is not actually trade in the strict sense, is we actually make things together. And much of what moves back and forth across the border are not things we're just selling to the other side, but they're actually things that are moving between companies or within companies that are making a single product that we will sell together at the end. And so when we talk about NAFTA, if you talk about getting rid of NAFTA, or talk about trying to save the Ameri American industry, it's impossible to talk about saving American industry without thinking about Mexican industry and Canadian industry, because all three have become deeply integrated. Now there are things we could do to improve NAFTA. There are things that were not considered in it. There are things that could be done to increase wages in Mexico, for example. But ultimately, it's impossible to think about taking apart the integration that we have among the three countries without doing damage to ourselves. And, and to come back to the nail plant, right now we just impose steel tariffs on Mexico. It's a little bit ironic because, because Mexico actually imports more steel from us than, than they export to us. But nonetheless, we, we just, apparently it's a national security threat. We, uh, so we impose steel, steel tariffs on Mexico. I mean, there's a huge danger with the nail plant. I haven't touched base with the people involved in the nail plant since this happened. But, but just looking on the face of this, I think there's a huge danger we may actually be undoing our own nail industry in the process, right? And these are the kind of tensions that are there. If we suddenly put tariffs on cars coming from Mexico, and Mexico puts tariffs on cars coming from the United States, or we put tariffs on car parts, even more so, we begin to add to the cost of making a car in North America. And what we do is we ultimately, probably not tomorrow, but we ultimately shift production outside of North America. But it turns out we make more than just industrial goods together. And that's really important, by the way. Industrial goods are very important. We make lots of other things together. 
Um, technology. I have a fun chapter, actually, where I talk about one of the most fun to write. I don't know if it's fun to read, but it's fun to write, uh, about technology innovation between the United States and Mexico. It's an incredible amount of innovation going on between Silicon Valley and Guadalajara, for example. And, and thanks to Joe, there's a, an article in uh, Socolo, in the, in the printed magazine, in the, in the online magazine um, that I wrote talking about Guadalajara as Mexico's new Silicon Valley. And, and, and Guadalajara is really becoming, though Mexico City and Tijuana and Aguascalientes and Monterrey, there are a lot of cities in Mexico, Puebla, that, that are invested in technological innovation. Guadalajara has really made it its calling card and it's come quite far. And Guadalajara has developed a, a technology industry that's very tied to the US. And it's tied, it was originally a technology industry that was about producing things, simply about producing chips back in the 70s and 80s. It eventually moved into some research and development itself, but for US and European and Asian companies. And in its most recent round, has started to develop its own set of startup companies. And so I track some of those in the book, actually. And there's, there's lots of connections between investors on both sides of the border, but also ideas flowing back and forth on how to start companies. And you, and you begin to have the first generation of truly genuine Mexican startups that are successful in Guadalajara, as well as in other cities in Mexico. We also do a lot of sports together. Um, not only the World Cup, you know, which is the world's game, but, but the NFL. Has, has anyone watched the NFL games in Mexico? The last two seasons, the NFL has played regular season games in Mexico City in Estadio Azteca. And they're committed to do it for four more years. Um, the NBA also played four games last year in Mexico City and are committed to continue to do that. Basketball. Major League Baseball, last month in May, played a three-game series in Monterrey. The Dodgers and the Padres played in Monterrey, Mexico. And ML, the Major League Baseball is committed to continue to do this as well. A lot of connections with sports. And most of this is about appealing to a big market next door. Part of it's also about appealing to a million to two million Americans who live in Mexico. It's a very large number. It's more Americans than live in all of Europe. And part of it's, of course, appealing to Mexican origin fans in the United States. Sort of get three, you know, kill three birds with one stone if you want an awful metaphor, right? Um, we also do, since we're in Los Angeles, we also do film together. It probably has not passed unnoticed to this group that four of the last winners, four of the five last winners of the Oscar for Best Director are Mexican. Four of the last five winners of the Oscar for Best Director are Mexican. That's really unusual given how truly global Hollywood is. Now, that's actually three people who've won it four times. <laughs> it's the three amigos, as they're called, those tres amigos, as they're called, right? I mean, this is González Iñárritu, and Cuarón and Del Toro, who grew up together, they grew up professionally together, not actually in their young days, but grew up professionally together in Mexico, came into global cinema together. And there's some story about them individually and their success. And certainly they've trailblazed for Mexicans in Hollywood. But it turns out they're not the only ones. And they're doing incredible films. And they're doing films about global themes, right? You don't get more global than gravity, right? In fact, not on global, universal than gravity, right? Or the shape of water or Pacific Rim, or Hellboy, or The Revenant. I mean, these are stories that, that have universal appeal, though they're made by Mexican filmmakers. But no, not the only ones. Patricia Riggin, who made Under the Same Moon, or Miracles from Heaven, or The 33. Gabriel Ripstein, who just did the last season of Narcos, if anyone saw that. Um, or Chronic, actually, or has produced two uh, movies that have received prizes at Cannes, made by Michel Franco, another Mexican filmmaker. Or if you've uh, seen the, the, uh, um, the uh, 
the cameraman, Guillermo Narvaro, um, Emmanuel Lubezki, who's also won an Oscar, actually two or three Oscars, I believe, who've made movies like Spy Kids, Night at the Museum, Twilight Saga, very Mexican themes, by the way, <laughs> Twilight Saga, Star Trek Discovery, um, Tree of Life, and of course, Gravity and the Revenant, in the case of Lubezki. And there's a lot of writers and editors and makeup artists and other people in Hollywood who started their career in Mexico. Something has happened between the film industry in Mexico, which is increasingly mature, and the film industry in Hollywood, which is the global magnet for the film industry. And I talk a little bit about why this happened in Mexico and why Mexico developed such a powerful film industry, but why it's also become connected. And there's a whole new generation of Mexican filmmakers who aren't necessarily gravitating to Hollywood as well, who prefer to make films in Mexico. And so both of those things are happening at the same time. And then there's a whole set of filmmakers who do both, actually. Ripstein is one of them who, who actually work in Hollywood a lot, but also work in Mexico a lot and come back and forth across the border. So it's not just cars and it's not just nails that we make. We're working together on things like sports, on innovation, and in film. Now, all of these stories have been about things outside the government. And that's not an accident. My sense is that most of the creativity in this relationship is happening not in Washington, D.C., where I live, or Mexico City. It's happening in other places like Los Angeles and Guadalajara. Or if it's happening in Washington, Mexico City, it's happening by people who are not necessarily tied to the government. But that doesn't mean the government is never creative. And it doesn't mean the people in government aren't working together. And in fact, there's a great deal that goes on between the national governments in Mexico and the United States, even at a time of political conflict, that's incredibly creative. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot going on at the state and local level between Mexico and the United States. One of my favorite stories in the book is the unusual case of San Diego and Tijuana. And it's a personal story for me because I lived in Tijuana for almost six years in the 1990s and then in San Diego for about a year and a half. And I went back and forth frequently. And back in the 1990s, it was hard to believe that these were similar sized cities close to each other because they were so distant in so many ways. You know, the, Tijuana was a rough and tumble city, largely into peace, you know, piecework and, and uh, low value added manufacturing. San Diego was a beautiful but somewhat isolated beach town. You know, these were cities that was hard to imagine that they would ever get together, you know. Something started to happen in the early 2000s Part of it is that both cities began to evolve. Tijuana began to move up the value-added chain, began to move into advanced manufacturing, much more complex, began to develop its own research and development operations, its own companies. Um, you also saw the growth of a middle class in Tijuana. You saw the growth of some state capacity, and you saw the incredible cultural scene coming out of Tijuana. And if, has anyone gone to Tijuana for dinner or lunch? Yes, good to see hands up on this. Tijuana has some of the best, has one of the best food scenes anywhere in Mexico, and I would argue anywhere on the West Coast as well. It's become a very sophisticated culinary scene, and that goes from taco stands to food carts to high-end restaurants. It has a great music scene, and that goes from you know, electronica to classical music and opera. It's become a very sophisticated city. San Diego, too, and I say this at my peril in Los Angeles, because I know there's a little bit of competition here. But San Diego, not really. Well, San Diego was once, you know, it was a quiet little town, nice place to go visit, but, you know, you didn't think of it as an innovation powerhouse. San Diego has really become an innovation powerhouse, right? I mean, biomedical um, particularly, but also in terms of sound equipment. I mean, it actually has some areas where it really is a leading city in the United States. 
And somewhere along the way, Sandy and Tijuana began to notice each other. And there were a few people who, who realized this before others and were pushing this. But it, but it isn't until recently that leaders in both cities began really to notice the potential. And there was one thing in particular that drove them together. And that was the question of the airport. If you've flown into San Diego airport, it's a scary experience. <laughs> I mean, thankfully, pilots are wonderful. They do a great job landing. But San Diego airport is right downtown. Right? It's been there a very long time. The downtown grew around it. It's got a marine base on one side. It's got the bay. There's nowhere to expand the San Diego airport. Right? It's right in the middle of a lot of things. And as San Diego grew and began to have ambitions beyond being a beautiful town by the beach, began to think of itself as a town of innovation, as a town of originality, it needed an airport that matched its ambitions and matched what it already had. And this debate started about 40 years ago, and it went on until recently but it really intensified as San Diego's needs intensified. And there were debates, and I remember this from when I lived there in the 1980s, there were several options, menu of options about where you could move the Tijuana, where you could move the San Diego airport, and none of them seemed to work. You couldn't really move the downtown, you certainly couldn't move the Marines, so you, know, you can't move the Bay very easily as well. You know, we're running out of options, until they started to realize that the best option was not to build another airport in San Diego, but to join forces with Tijuana. Because Tijuana has a very large airport. It actually already had flights to Asia. And the Tijuana airport is right on the border. It is literally next to the border fence. And so instead of building another airport in San Diego, what you could do is actually build a bridge over the border fence to the Tijuana airport. And that's what they did. So there's a little rusted border fence. San Diego is actually where some of the fencing on the border started, right? The original wall started. So down below, you have the rusted border fence. And above it, you have a beautiful bridge, which connects San Diego to the Tijuana airport. You check in on the San Diego side in English or Spanish. You park on the San Diego side. You check in in English or Spanish on the US side. You go across. You go through immigration. You go through customs very quickly. And you go to your gate, almost as though you're in the United States. And on the way back, you do the exact opposite. Works incredibly well. And it's also become something of a symbol of what the two cities can do together. San Diego and Tijuana increasingly started to realize that they could use the same airport. They should start thinking about other things that they could do together in terms of economic planning. I have an interview with the mayor of San Diego, Mayor Faulkner, who says, we don't talk about two cities, we talk about one region. And it's something that I found echoed repeatedly as I went back to San Diego and Tijuana. I went back several times as I was working on the book was people started talking about one metro region. This is one metro region. We need to think in terms of the complementaries. And it, it turns out, actually, the same top three industries in Tijuana, same top three industries in San Diego. And they do some of the same functions, but they also do some complementary functions on both sides of the border. And so increasingly, you see city leaders meeting together, often monthly, to try and figure out how they can plan things together. Right now, they're actually trying to figure out how to, how to develop a piece of real estate on both sides of the border right down by one of the border crossings. Um, I mean, it's a joint binational project to figure out what to do, because if you only do it on one side, it's not as effective as if you do it on both sides. Tijuana and San Diego, two cities that were as far apart as you could believe 20 years ago when I lived there, have become probably the largest binational metropolitan area in the world. This is rather striking. And, but it turns out that it's not just mayors who are pragmatic. We expect mayors to be somewhat pragmatic, right? We expect federal governments to be less pragmatic. But it turns out, even on the federal side, there's a lot going on between the two countries that's surprising. At a time 
where national politicians say angry things about each other and send tweets about each other, maybe more on one side than the other. <laughs> There's a lot going on, even in security cooperation. We can talk more about it if you want. Security, we have a big problem on organized crime between Mexico and the United States, between our hunger for illicit drugs and Mexico's weak rule of law. We have an organized crime problem. And I say it's an organized crime problem tried to drugs rather than a drug problem. It's both, obviously. But here it's manifested as a real drug problem. In Mexico, it's manifested as a problem of violence and organized crime. And it's both in both places. But even in that area, there's incredible cooperation that goes on between law enforcement, intelligence communities, the military, among NGOs that are trying to monitor and push for accountability. Even at the border. And we see a lot of tweets about how out of control the border is even though we're at some of the lowest numbers of, of illegal border crossings in the last 40 some years, actually, since about 1971, we're at the lowest number of illegal border crossings, unauthorized border crossings. But there are issues at the border. But even at the border, the tendency has actually been for the two governments to work together to figure out how they can make the border both more secure and more efficient. So one of the things that's been tried, well, I'll tell you two of the things that have been tried. One's something called unified cargo processing. And I was in Nogales, Arizona yesterday where they pioneered this. And they're doing something similar in a couple other places, um, including actually in San Diego, Tijuana, is where they have US and Mexican inspectors standing next to each other. And there's a single process where you come in if you have a truck, you hand your paperwork to Mexican and US inspectors at the same time, they check it, and they actually share intelligence if they know something that, about the truck that's coming through that could be damaging. You know, and the idea is you actually, instead of like separating out, if you get Mexicans and Americans standing next to each other, working together, we're much more likely to catch problems, and it's a lot more likely to be efficient. It turns out to be three or four times more efficient than trying to go through two processes in sequence. But it also turns out to be a lot more secure. And the tendency on the border, as much as we hear the political rhetoric and people pulling apart, the tendency on the border is increasingly to try and get Mexican and US inspectors standing next to each other in the same physical facility. The other thing we've started to do is actually pre-inspection, where we have American immigration customs agents inside of Mexico and Mexican immigration customs agents inside the United States pre-inspecting trucks that are coming through. This is not yet done for passengers, but it is done for trucks. It's something we do with Canada regularly. In fact, if you've flown out of Canada, before, you've probably gone through immigration in Canada with US immigration agents. Before you get on the plane, by the time you get back to the United States, you're home free, right? You walk out and you catch your taxi, your ride, your Uber, whatever, Lyft, whatever it is you take. Um, it makes it much more efficient. But also doing this for trucks, which is a huge piece of the traffic through there, means that instead of having a bottleneck at the border, you get a lot of this done, particularly for people you know who are regular crossers. You get this done before people get to the border. You send them on a, on a, on a specific lane so they, don't, they can't wander off, and they move on through. Or in the case of, of Laredo, Texas Airport, that pre-inspection actually happens in a hangar of the Texas airport with Mexican agents and US agents together. So even at a time of deep political divisions, I would argue to you that, that within government, especially at a local and state level, but even at a national level, there's a lot of creativity that continues to go on that would be surprising. And it happens. And I've talked to people in the Trump administration about this. You know, and you would be surprised. You would assume that the, the tendency is to, to think that Mexico is the enemy. But that's not true. Anyone who has actually had to solve real problems ends up discovering how deep these ties are and how much our self-interest it is to work together on many of these issues, including managing the border. So to wrap this up and to try and bring it together, let me say that I don't think politics is irrelevant. And I, I think politics will make for a rocky relationship in the next few years. 
and politicians are playing to a piece of the country in the United States that's skeptical about Mexico, and politicians in Mexico are going to play to a part of the Mexican population that is skeptical about further engagement with the United States. Sometimes this has to do with Mexico, but I occasionally tell my friends and colleagues in Mexico, not everything we say about you is really about you. Sometimes when we say Mexico, we're really talking about ourselves. Sometimes we're talking about our own struggles around changing demographics. Sometimes we're talking about our own fears about globalization. Sometimes we're talking about fears, often legitimate, about the way work is changing and our fears of competition. We shouldn't discount all these fears. Some of them have legitimate bases, some of them don't perhaps, but nonetheless they're real fears. Now how politicians use them is a different question. But sometimes when we say Mexico, sometimes when we say we want to build a, a wall on the border with Mexico, we're not really trying to keep Mexicans out, we're trying to keep the world out. And that's a conversation about ourselves more than it's a conversation about Mexico. It's a conversation about how we fit in the world. Now I will occasionally say to my friends and colleagues in Mexico, sometimes we are talking about you. <laughs> Don't think it's not at all about you either. I mean, there is an element in which there are issues that we have to deal with, right? I mean, that the Americans have have concerns also about trading relationships with all countries around the world. As much as I can argue that there's a net benefit for jobs in the United States without integration with Mexico, people have different lived experiences. The, f the fact that on net average, Mexico has been good for American jobs is wonderful for a country at large, but we don't live in the net average, right? And so people have different experiences of this as well. But overall, we will, in the long term, continue to have a good relation with Mexico. And most Americans, by the way, in public opinion polls, and specifically younger Americans, even more so, have very good opinion of Mexico. And most Mexicans have a very positive opinion of the United States. It's dropping a little bit at the moment, but, but for the most part, very positive. We will continue to work with Mexico because it's in our self-interest. And we'll continue to draw closer. And so if in the end, you have to measure the future by whether the latest spat between politicians is where we're headed, or the World Cup where we've joined together is where we're headed, I would choose the World Cup. I would also choose the innovation connections that are going on, or the football and baseball and basketball connections. I would choose the film connections. I'd choose the manufacturing connections. I'd choose the problem-solving connections at the border. Because this is the future of our relationship with Mexico that over time we'll continue to grow more interconnected and over time we'll begin to understand each other and it's going to be hard and it's going to take time but over time we will begin to understand these interconnections and we'll embrace our differences and we'll embrace our connections. Thank you. Hello, my name is Victor Salazar. Uh, I really enjoy your presentation today. Um, so, so far uh, you present a very compelling view of uh, an optimistic take on bilateral relations between two countries. But I'm more curious to know uh, what is your response or what would you be your uh, solution to the ongoing security crisis in Mexico that is currently ongoing? Uh, sure, you know that uh, last year was uh, the, one of the most violent uh, years ever in Mexico. And that phenomenon impacts uh, the United States' perception of Mexico, 
And what would be your solution to try to address that joint problem with specifically organized crime? The two most pessimistic chapters in, in the book are the chapters about security cooperation. And, and they're not pessimistic because there aren't good things going on. I mean, actually, after having interviewed people in, in law enforcement and the military and intelligence and in NGOs that are working on this issue, the amount of cooperation that goes on is quite incredible. And the amount of trust that has been built on both sides of the board. This is true inside government and outside government of those that are pressuring for change has been quite incredible. Um, but there's been a real lack of leadership and I think we've, we've wandered away from paying attention to this. And one of the things, I think two things have happened. I think one is, is we lost direction in trying to figure out what to do with organized crime. There was an attempt to do it with some mistakes but an attempt to actually address this. I think both countries have, have not placed it as a high priority. And the second thing that happened was heroin, right, and fentanyl and, and other synthetic opioids, um, which really shook up the drug market. I mean, drug markets, by the way, are generally not violent. There's always some violence. You know, you have to enforce contracts without courts, so there's always a little bit of violence. But usually it's the threat of violence rather than actual violence. You have real violence when things are shaken up for some reason, right? I mean, there's some incentive for violence to happen. And part of what we saw in the past few years is also these markets were really shaken up. Heroin was, was a marginal drug for most of the organized crime groups. And now it's become a central part of their business. And, and that actually has really shaken up how they operate in Mexico and to, a, to some extent in the US. So, I mean, here there's several things and, and there's no magic bullet on this. I mean, one is obviously in Mexico a huge need for investing in police and courts and prosecutors and defenders right, in creating a, a system for rule of law that actually functions. There have been some success on this. I mean, one of the things I say in the book actually is that there are some cities like Tijuana and Ciudad Juarez and Monterrey that are much better off than they once were. Not that they're perfect. Tijuana actually has a very high murder rate, but you could walk around Tijuana at night in a way that you would not have done during the last height of violence, right? Because violence does not, there was a time when homicides were accompanied by kidnappings, by extortion, Violence was public and in the streets and outside schools. It tends to happen among people in the business right now. Not exclusively, but, but much more so. And that's because for the first time, there's actually some fear of the police. There's some fear of the court system. Not perfect. You know, it's not perfect, but, it, but a lot more than it was 10 years ago. Same thing is true in Ciudad Juarez, once the murder capital of the world. To some extent, same thing is true in Monterrey. Three of the most violent cities if you go back to the last peak violence. My wife is from Guerrero, however. And Guerrero, things have gotten worse, right? So there are parts of Mexico where things have legitimately gotten worse. And there's really been a drift in terms of institution building. Mexicans do know how to build institutions, but there's a lot more pressure needed, and there's a lot the U.S. can do to help. The flip side of this is, is you know, ultimately, all of this is driven by consumption in the United States. And so there's a huge need to look at seriously. And we keep talking about dealing with the opioid addiction crisis in the United States, but we haven't actually done much yet on it. There's a real need to actually raise this to a much higher level. There's a need to deal with, with money that flows back into Mexico from American consumers that funds the violence and in the arms that flow back as well. These are issues that we have been reluctant to touch. And so a lot of cooperation going on. It's really a good story in some ways. And yet some of the things that are most important aren't happening. You've spoken positively about all the relationships between Mexico and the United States. Yet, you know, going back to Ross Perot and the great sucking sound, now up to the current administration speaking negatively of, of the Mexican relationship. Where are, the, where are the institutions 
that are going to publicize the positive aspects that you're talking about? Where are the auto companies that aren't speaking about, as you said, the auto parts moving back and forth? Where are the academics? Where are the government people who can highlight the positive things you said to impact public opinion? I think we don't know as much as we should know, but, but we actually don't know nothing either. We actually do actually have, there is a conversation about Mexico's connectedness to us. I think one of the reasons we have not withdrawn from NAFTA, I mean, and this was a campaign issue of the President of the United States, was to withdraw from NAFTA. We know he came very close to doing so at the end of his 100 days. It has not happened in large part because there's been enormous pressure, first from the agricultural industry that would be very hard hit by this, secondly from the auto companies, and third from the states that would be directly affected, including a lot of states that voted for President Trump. Right, and so this is his part of his base, right? That that actually is very sensitive to withdrawing from NAFTA. Who may be open to the idea of renegotiating NAFTA, but not withdrawing. Now there is a huge X factor here. We don't know in the end what the president's going to decide on NAFTA and how the negotiations will go. But so far, I would argue the reason we haven't withdrawn is is there is actually a fair amount of pressure going on. Now, could we do more? Yes. I mean, it, it, you know, but the reality is most Americans. And increasingly so. I mean, I actually looked at some some polls while I was doing the book. You know, we've seen over the last four or five years increasing positive attitudes towards Mexico. You know, the majority of Americans actually have a very pragmatic engagement with Mexico. You know, and it comes through food, it comes through film, it comes through, you know, their jobs, it comes through vacationing in Mexico or knowing Mexican neighbors, people who immigrated from Mexico in their neighborhood. We have engagements with Mexico which have made us more positive over time. But we clearly need to tell these stories better, and we clearly need to raise this a level higher than it's been raised in the past. And the penalty, if we don't do it, obviously, is we may end up doing some things that do damage unto ourselves. It'll hurt the Mexicans, but it'll hurt us as Americans as well. My name is Eduardo Gonzalez. Hey, Eduardo. Um, thank you so much for coming to do this talk. This has been very informative. Um, and now I'm a, a student of immigration. I'm a scholar of immigration. So oh, as I've uh, been listening, I can't help but notice lots of really cool and informative ideas about the movement of goods and capital However, what seems to have been left out thus far in the conversation has been the question of migration and of immigrants and where that plays into a story that all of us know too well, which is the bifurcation of globalization between goods and capital and the movement of people. And so as we you know, learn about and listen to uh, your stories about innovation regarding movement of goods and capital and the uh, fluidity with which these things can move across borders, we also, I think, must recognize the rigidity with which we've seen the United States border along Mexico impede the flow of people. And I think this can be said of uh, low-skill uh, workers and as well as higher-skilled and high-educated visa opportunities. And so my question to you is, as you paint this optimistic picture of a future with which we see binational relations improving, where does the role of migration come into the picture with the United States cracking down on immigration at the United States-Mexico border, but also imposing its will at the southern border of Mexico with Guatemala, for example, with the Plan Frontera Sur, where we see the United States Border Patrol and uh, you know, Customs Border Protection helping stem the flow of, for example, Central American migrants in the south. This question of immigration policy seems to never go away, and I'm curious about your thoughts on it. We actually have very robust immigration from Mexico. Um, what's interesting in the past few years, I mean, we have very, we have very limited unauthorized immigration from Mexico these days. Since 2007, we probably have net zero or probably a net outflow of, of an authorized population 
towards Mexico. We have very robust legal immigration from Mexico these days, actually. Um, High-skilled, low-skilled family, primarily family, actually, although Mexicans are now behind Indians and Chinese immigrants, actually, in terms of the overall flows. But nonetheless, I mean, it's a, it, it's a quarter of all immigrants in the United States are from Mexico. Um, I worry a lot that the tenor has changed at the top. Um, you know, that is less about the current flows of Mexicans, it's a lot about the current flows of Central Americans, but it's a lot about the population living in this country. And most, you know, when we were talking about unauthorized immigrants 10 or 15 years ago, we were talking about people who, for the most part, had come relatively recently. There were always a few people who went back. Today, a majority of people who are unauthorized immigrants in the United States have lived in the US for more than 10 or 15 years. So these are people with deep roots in American society, with families in American society. Um, and so I think that is a huge pending issue. And I think it's a huge pending issue what we do with our legal immigration system. I mean, as much as you know, we have an incredible regime in terms of family immigration, we actually have one of the more generous family immigration systems in the world. We have one of the least generous employment-based immigration systems in the world. So one of the things we need to begin to look at is how do we deal with employment-based immigration at all levels, from low-skilled to high-skilled, right? And middle-skilled, there's a lot of, you know, we often forget the middle-skilled, but in fact, middle-skilled immigrants are a really important category there. Um, of course, we can't even start to have that conversation until we recognize that we're an immigrant country, right? That, that unless you are 100% Native American, all of us came willingly or not because, you know, part of our history was forced migration as well, but all of us came from somewhere else. Our ancestors came from somewhere else or we came from somewhere else. Until we get back to that conversation where reasonable people can disagree on what the policy is, but we all agree that immigration is part of who we are, it's going to be hard to, to have a serious conversation. Um, with Central America, Mexico is increasingly trying to control its borders. Um, I'm not sure that's necessarily bad, by the way. So the question is how you do it, right? And the question is, do you create real channels for people who have legitimate fear of persecution? And does that go a little bit beyond the refugee standard, right? Because there's a really strict, we tend to follow a really strict fear of persecution standard. It just got stricter in the past week. Past couple days. Past couple days, right. You know, but a lot of people might not meet that standard but yet they're fleeing, they are fleeing from real violence. They're, they do have real fear of returning, even if it's not individual persecution. And so what many countries have done, and unfortunately we're not in this, Mexico is actually a little better on this, but, but still is not much further, is, is expand a little bit the definition of, of who is considered a refugee or a legitimate asylee. That's something we need to talk about. I mean, we do have to have some border control. We can't let everyone in, but there is a question also about how how we expand who we let in. But we can't have any of these conversations seriously until we get back to a rational conversation about immigration, and we're not there yet. <laughs> Could I add one more thing? Part of, I think, why the relationship is changing, and this is the Hazleton story again, is ultimately because, I mean, one-tenth of Americans has Mexican heritage. This is growing over time, and it's not gonna grow not because of immigration as much, because there's actually a lot of Mexicans leaving, same time actually also through legal routes both ways, but it's gonna change also because of intermarriage, it's gonna change because we live in the same neighborhoods. I mean, the, this is a piece of the story also of why we're coming together, and because there's a million to two million Americans living in Mexico. I mean, you know, of all the things happening, that may be the strongest bond. Raul Hinojosa, uh, Andrew, so brilliant book, came out fantastic. Thank you, Raul. I, I, I must say, I have to quibble, of course, page Please 275. Quibble. Uh, that um, the city is experiencing rapid demographic change and declining industrial employment, and he played them by offering the border as the wall and the metaphor. I, I, I think we have to be just careful because as, as, you know, the Trump paradox is that 98% of the counties that voted for Trump 
are not Hazleton, have never met Mexicans, actually. True. And don't have e either import competition from them. So something deep is going on here, right? That, and I, I want to uh, ask you to respond in the form of what do we tell an incoming president of Mexico on how to deal with Donald Trump, basically? How do we specifically try to talk to the vast majority of this population that has a racialized metaphor that has been the Pavlovian in, uh, uh, instituted at this point, that we need to be able to reach out to them. Is it going to the, the congressional districts that we know are gonna get hurt? Because that's actually a lot more of the population will get hurt than had in the future than has ever experienced relationships with Mexico up to this point. Yeah, Raul Hinojosa at UCLA did a, a great study which shows that actually the, the counties, that count, you did a county level as I remember, counties that voted for President Trump tended to have less experience with trade with Mexico and less experience with immigration. There is however some evidence that, that actually the rate of increase in immigration in, in nearby, if not always in, the, in, in particular cities, has a huge effect on people's reaction. You know, and so Hazleton, you're right, is an outlier in some ways. But often it is rapid change, even if it's from zero to five percent or zero to ten percent, that actually, and it may not be in your city, it may be in the city next door, but but often that seems to have been a trigger in some in some cities. So we can argue about that later. The other, on the other question, I, you know, I, I think one thing I would tell a new Mexican president is don't obsess about Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, um, and I would probably say that about whoever the president is, but, but at this particular time even more. I mean, don't think that this is a relationship about two presidents. Um, think that this is a broader relationship and make sure you engage as a broader relationship. So make sure you engage at the cabinet level, at the sub-cabinet level. Make sure you engage with governors and mayors. Make sure you engage with civil society. Make sure you engage with the business community. That the more you make this, you acknowledge and recognize how complex a relationship this is and you engage the largest number of actors the more firm the relationship will be and more constrained the federal government will be on the other side, you know? And frankly, if, if I were to give advice to, to a U.S. president, and I'm not saying this president has sought my advice, but if, if, you know, in general, I would say that the same holds true in the inverse, though. In, at least in normal times, it holds true in the inverse, which is, you know, U.S. politicians are, are advised also to think of this as a complex relationship. Right? And when we think of this as, you know, president to president will fix things, that's probably not ever going to happen, and it's certainly not going to happen now. My name is um, Stephen Pierre Elliott, Gabriel Duga. Um, uh, you, you discussed about NAFTA um, at this point. Um, the, you know, remember there, is a G, uh, there was a G7 um, summit up in Charlevoix, uh, Quebec. Um, the Right Honorable, right honorable um, Justin Trudeau discussed about uh, the, 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 the NAFTA deal. So, so I'm going to say my question. Uh, you have pointed out in the presentation that the economy have um, increased exponentially for the last decade, dec dec decade or so um, because, of, because of NAFTA. But now the current administration is arguing that we should, not to say withdraw, but renegotiate NAFTA with, with the Sunset Clause. Now, uh, let's put it in the political context. Um, the Minister of, uh, Minister of International Trade of Canada and the Minister of, of Trade of Mexico come together and talk with the with the um, cabinet with the cabinet secretary here in the United States. So, if what if there if there is a sunset clause um, that is put on in the in the renegotiating re with NAFTA, do you do you think that um, both both Mexico and U.S. could benefit with the sunset clause? And if 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 not, 
if if so, what are the dire consequences? Are they going to face both Mexico and Canada, Canada, and also and also the United States? I mean, there's a reason why we don't put sunset clauses in trade agreements in normal times, and, and it's because it undermines you know what what they're trying to do, right? Which is create certainty, right? So, and, and this is particularly true. And in the case of North America, where you have decisions being made, whether it's a nail plant or an auto plant, for the long term, people are thinking in terms of 10, 20, 30, 40 years in terms of their investment. And if they don't know if five years from now the, there suddenly could be tariffs, then we're likely to see much less investment. And suddenly other parts of the world begin to look more attractive to invest in, right? I mean, this actually undermines us if we go this way. Um, my guess is they probably won't end up agreeing on that. Um, it's something both Canada and, and Mexico have drawn a red line on. Then again, I've made lots of certain statements in the past couple of years, said things with great certainty and being completely and totally wrong. So uh, we do not live in, in usual times where things are predictable. You can decide whether that's good or bad. Um, but, but, uh, but my sense is in, you know, in, in normal terms, that would be in normal times. I, I cannot see Canada or Mexico agreeing to that, nor would I see U.S. negotiators wanting that because it's not in, in the interest of, of U.S. industry or U.S. investment um, uh, because it just it goes against the predictability factor. But then again, anything can happen these days. Thank you. Before we close, I'd like to thank C-SPAN for being here tonight. They recorded tonight's lecture for future rebroadcast. I'd also like to thank all of you for joining us tonight. Please stick around for the reception. Grab a drink with us. We also have Skylight Books here selling copies of Andrew Seeley's new book, Vanishing Frontiers, The Forces Driving Mexico and the United States Together. And finally, a big round of applause for Mr. Andrew Seeley. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>